This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, I have the honor of speaking with Dr. Bruce Lipton, someone whom I can say is a true visionary. Bruce is an author and cell biologist who has taught at the nation's leading medical schools. Over three decades of research in cell biology has made him a leading expert on the role and function of our cells. He's the author of the Sounds True audio learning programs, The Wisdom of Your Cells, as well as The Biology of Belief. Starting on June 9th, Bruce will be participating in a three-part online event called Spontaneous Evolution and 2012, The Choice to Become a New Species. In this online event, he'll be exploring his views of our current evolutionary shift from a scientific perspective. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Bruce and I spoke about the lessons we can learn from ourselves, the connection between what he calls the field and our physical body, and what he believes really drives evolution. Here's quite a far-reaching and mind-bending conversation with Dr. Bruce Lipton. This idea, I mean, there's so many things that you teach about the wisdom of the cells, but let's just start there. I mean, the wisdom of the cells that you've learned from the cell. Bring me up to speed on that. First thing is this, is that when we look at our human bodies in a mirror, we generally see one living entity looking back at us. And and then uh, what I bring up in the lectures is that that is a misperception, because in truth, uh, a human body is comprised of approximately 50 trillion cells. And what's uh, very important about that is each cell is the equivalent of a sentient living organism. In fact, in my research, I would take human cells out of a body and put them in a tissue culture dish. And they have their own lives and, and communities and, uh, and their own world separate from the, from the human body. Uh, and so the first thing is that uh, we are not a one thing. We are a community uh, of intelligent beings called cells. And, and when I started to look at the into the nature of the cells, I found that every cell essentially has all the same functions that a human being has. So I go through a human, I say, well, we have a nervous system, a digestive, a respiratory, musculoskeletal, uh, um, reproductive system, even an immune system. And then I say, when you look at the cells in the body, almost every cell has every one of those systems. Every cell is functionally the equivalent of a miniature human. And in addition to that, um, the cells live in a community, and they have this wonderful technology uh, that they use to create a human body, so that the human body is actually uh, uh, a very advanced technology created by our own cells. So at some point, we have to stop and say, these cells are pretty darn intelligent. In fact, some of the technology in the body far exceeds the technology that humans are capable of right now. So uh, for these little guys that nobody ever really sees, uh, I was just taken by them because of their intelligence, their ability to live in community, to create harmony and health, uh, and just their innate intelligence. So 
uh, I started to look at them in the nature of how, as individuals, they live in a community and, and the life of a cell in general. And I realized that there were many lessons on the nature of how to live healthily that uh, were available by communicating with the cells. And ever since I've had communication, dialogue, understanding, working with them since cloning stem cells for 40 years, my life has profoundly changed. Uh, and I have to credit the cells for the information they provided to lead me to this better life. Okay, so what did you learn from the cells about having a better life? Things that you actually put, have put into action in your life. Okay, well, uh, number one, which is, you know, I'll start off with a, a, a global one that just blew me away. Uh, I, wasn't a very, I wasn't spiritual at all. Uh, I was a biochemist and geneticist and cellular biologist and working on the mechanics and chemistry of life. And in that field, uh, the concept of spirit uh, was really not that, that relevant <laughs> Uh, it, it wasn't necessary to understand biology, at least that's what we thought. And um, when I started to understand the nature of the cell and how it worked, I realized at some point um, that there was a part of me that wasn't in the body, and it was an energy, and it's a quantum physics understanding of part of what we call the fields, the energy fields, and that I play through my body, and so that my identity is not inside my cells. My cells actually have antennas on the surface, just like the little miniature television antennas that pull in a broadcast. And I am that broadcast, and every person on this planet, uh, on their own cells, have a different set of antennas. To, and it's fun because the uh, medical profession refers to many of these antennas as self-receptors, receivers of self. And so when I started to learn this, I started to recognize that my identity awareness was something that was disconnected from my physical body but played through it and on the first day when I was really blown away by this transformational information that came my way uh, I was in shock that uh, here I am not spiritual and then when I started to understand the nature of the mechanism I realized my identity was some kind of information from outside playing in and I was like oh, I'm not even in here it blew me away but it was interesting because the first question that popped into my mind after owning what I saw in the mechanics of the cell was well, I exist as both a spiritual entity and as a, as a body. And I was thinking to myself, why have both? And I really believe the cells just forward this answer, direct hotline to my brain. The answer came out, and I asked, why have both a spirit and a body? And the answers came, I believe, for myself, that, um, Bruce, if you're just a spirit, what does chocolate taste like? And, and then, you know, Bruce, if you're just a spirit, what does a sunset look like? And if you're just a spirit, what does feeling in love, what does that feel like? And I realized, oh my goodness, that the biological body is almost like a virtual reality suit that my identity gets into. And the cells, and this is the part finally I'm getting to, the cells function is to translate the environmental information through a nervous system convert the information into vibrations, which is the information that I'm aware of. And I realized that the function of cells were to provide senses, that the sense of smell and touch and taste and vision and pain and hot and cold and just all these kind of senses that we have, they're the translation of the environment through the cells and then converting that information into the electromagnetic vibrations that emanate from the brain. And so I realized, oh my goodness, first lesson, that if I am alive and I have a body, then the function of my body is to sense the world. For a guy coming from a regular world kind of thing, uh, I remember growing up as a young boy, and boys have this programming uh, not to be sissies, 
which means, okay, we can, you know, be insensitive so we don't cry and we don't feel things. And I realized what bad programming my whole life was in that the main function I saw from the body was to provide sensation. And so at that point, I realized, my goodness, my programming uh, really had detracted from my life experiences. And I opened up to the reality of trying more things, tasting more things, going to see different things, and experiencing as many things as possible to give me the opportunity to, to experience this world in, in the world of senses. And that has been such a delightful opening to my whole life. Uh, because uh, in my former position as a tough male, insensitive, uh, is like, that doesn't help anybody, <laughs> including myself. And, and so I have to give credit to myself for acknowledging uh, the wonderful thing that they provide for me in my life, and that is all the wonderful sensations that, uh, that come through our nervous system. And so that, that was pretty good right there, I thought. Yeah, that is a good one. I want to ask you a couple questions about what you've just said. Yes. So I get the idea of the antenna that the cells are receiving sensory information and that now we have these 50 trillion cells and as a community we sort of have antenna and we're receiving sensory information all the time. Yes. So I'm with you there. I'm completely with you. Sometimes I actually feel like I have antenna, you know, literally coming out of the skin of my body, taking in all kinds of things. But you said something that that this led you to the conclusion that you were, quote-unquote, a spiritual being. So what's the connection between sensing, appreciating chocolate, appreciating the environment, air, everything, and being, quote-unquote, spiritual? Well, I I, I use the word spiritual in the sense that um, the definition that I would use if I was going to use the physics definition is that I'm part of the field. And I say, well, what to the what is the uh, to the physics is the field? Well, a simple definition of the field is that, uh, uh, invisible moving forces that shape the physical reality. Uh, and then I go back into history and I talk about spirit. What what does that mean? Well, all of a sudden I say, well, spirit. Oh, those are invisible moving forces that shape the physical reality. And I realized at some point it's like the energy of the field that I was recognizing in my research. Uh, is synonymous with the same word spirit. And so that science and, and spiritualism are, are, are coming together at this time in, in our evolution where uh, science is recognizing that the invisible forces around us, which they call the field, are primary in shaping our reality. And where I saw this was when I was trying to understand how the cell worked, one of the most important things I was doing when I was cloning these cells and trying to see what controlled their, their, their fate, uh, I have stem cells, and I put one stem cell in a culture dish by itself, and it divides about every 10 hours. And after about two weeks, I've got thousands of cells in a Petri dish, but they're all genetically identical. And what my first experiments were, were I'd separated this population into three different Petri plates. So I, I had three plates with identical genetic genetically identical cells in each plate. And then what I did was uh, change the environment ever so slightly, chemistry of the culture medium, which is the cell's environment. Uh, In each of the dishes, I had a slightly different environment. In one dish, the cells formed muscle. In one dish, the cells formed bone. In a third dish, the cells formed fat cells, all from the same genetically identical cells. So uh, the, the obvious question right at the very top is, what controls the fate of the cells? And the answer is, well, it wasn't the genetics because they were all genetically identical. The only thing that was different was the environment. Well, this opened up my eyes uh, about 40 years ago to a reality that was in complete conflict with the, 
work that I was teaching medical students and com- conflict with with most of the uh, education people are still getting in the world today the the belief that genes control our our biology and it turns out this is this is not true at all uh, uh, and so the concept of genetic control which means control by genes has now been replaced by a new science since the the time that I saw it 40 years ago this new science is called epigenetic control and the epi means above and so when I say epigenetic control literally I'm saying control above the genes well we're beginning to find out as I found out 40 years ago that the genes are actually controlled by the organism's perception or response to the environment so as an organism changes its environment it changes its genetic activity to accommodate the the conditions of the environment and, and when I saw this 40 years ago, of course, with conventional science, they were still teaching genes control life, and my experiments clearly revealed that the control was in the, in the environment. So my search said, uh, well, what controls the cell then? Well, the, what I was teaching and what's still taught, essentially, is that the genes control the cell, and the genes are collected, almost all of them are in the structure called the nucleus of the cell. And therefore, in textbooks, they frequently talk about the nucleus of the cell as the brain of the cell. Uh, and they say that because if genes, uh, if they believe that genes are controlling the characteristics and the genes are in the nucleus, then the control of the cell is in that nucleus, and therefore calling it the brain would make sense. But in my own work, I did uh, studies and experiments where I took the nuclei out of cells. It's called enucleation. And in my cultured cells, I could remove the nuclei. And what would happen is that many of the cells would stay alive for two or more months with no genes in it. And they were responding to all the environmental information, so they were forming communities, staying alive, and uh, doing every kind of function very dynamically uh, without any genes, which, you know, in the face of 40 years ago, it's like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, Since the genes are supposed to control the cell, here are cells with no genes, and they're doing very well. That sent me on a task for about another 10 or so years and led me to the cell membrane as the skin of the cell, as the actual brain the information processor of the cell and that the cell membrane uh, on one side read the environment and the cell membrane on the other side faced the interior the self the inside of the of the cell and so the membrane was at the interface between the external and internal uh, environments and in that capacity the cell membrane was reading the environment and then adjusting the cell and I started to recognize all this, I, all of a sudden I realized, well, the, the cell membrane, by technical definition, is a liquid crystal semiconductor with gates and channels. And at that time in 1980, so what I started to make an understanding, so I, did, I, I thought I'd heard that definition, and I didn't know where, and I found out that was the definition of a computer chip. And I thought, oh my goodness. The cells are, are programmable devices. They're like, with well, the nucleus has all the programs in it. That's what the genes are, programs. But the processor is the membrane, which is like a computer chip. And the environment is like the programmer that's typing on the surface of the cell where the antennas are, information. The information is picked up by the antennas and then controls the actions of the cells. Well, in that understanding, that's when my attention was drawn to the fact, yeah, but there's 
what makes one human different from another human is the presence of a set of antennas that I said were in part called self-receptors that distinguish one human from another. If I take the self-receptors off a cell, it's generic, and I can plant, implant a generic cell in any body and it will never be rejected, but if somebody has their self-receptors on the surface of the cell, that gives it identity. That's why we can't transplant our cells and tissues with each other, because each of us has our own identity. So now we're getting to the long story and getting to the short point, and that is the identity of an individual is some signal that is picked up by the antennas called self-receptors on the surface of the cell. And when those surface receptors are gone, the cell has no identity, and when the surface receptors are on, they, they become an individual cell. So what really was the bottom line conclusion is then the identity of a cell is nothing programmed into the cell. The identity of the cell is some information that is picked up from the environment via these antennas called self-receptors. And, and that hit me the very instant I saw that. I said, wait a minute, wait. It, then it says, my identity is not inside the cell because it's reading something from the environment. And what hit me was, well, wait, then if the cell dies, does the environmental signal leave the environment? The answer is no. The environment is, the signals are always there. And the, the cells come and go. And when a cell is present, it can read the signal. And when a cell dies, uh, the signal's still there, but the, the, the cell's not there. It's sort of like a, a cell or a human body. is like a television set with an antenna tuned to a station. And so right now, my antennas are tuned to the Bruce station, and my body is playing the Bruce show right here. And what's relevant about this is when we talk about televisions, I say the picture tube is dead. It breaks. The, you know, it's not working. We say the television's dead. I go, well, the television's dead, but the, the broadcast, is it still there? And the answer is, well, yes, uh, and you can tell or know that by just getting another television set, plugging it in, turning it on, and then tuning it to the station, and there, oop, the broadcast back on again. So what this all led me to see was my identity is not inside the cell. It's something out in the field that the cells can die, but if a, a future uh, embryo comes with the same set of antennas that I have on my body right now, it will download the same signal, and so the Bruce station will be on, but with a completely different body the next time. Uh, and so it was like uh, all of this made sense on the level of understanding the mechanics of the cell membrane as an information processor, the field as a source of information, and, and all of a sudden I realized my identity is immortal. It's part of a, a field of information, and that reincarnation uh, is a consequence of another individual in the future coming with the same set of self-receptors, like a combination lock. There's a large number of them. Uh, and that if that shows up again, then that individual is playing, but through uh, a different body, which could be different sex, different race, or anything. It's just a different biology. So this blew my mind because I said, my identity is not in here. And when I started to recognize it was outside, then I realized, well, the identity, uh, it, it doesn't just send information into the body via the antennas. It also, the information the body gleans from the environment through the nervous system, uh, the nervous system is broadcasting that information back out of the body. You can actually, there's a device, not electroencephalograph, but it's called magnetoencephalograph, where like the EEG reads brain activity by putting wires on the head and reading the electrical activity of the brain. The magnetoencephalograph does the same thing, but 
you don't have to touch the brain. The probe is outside the head. And so you can see that when a person is processing in their brain, you can read the information as being broadcast from their head. You can read it outside their body. So I started to realize that there's a two-way connection between the field and the body as the physical reality, that information comes from the field, goes into the body, and information from the body goes back to the field. So they're, in, they're uh, working with each other, and that's how our lives influence uh, the field when we're here. So all of this kind of metaphysical stuff turns out to be at the bottom level uh, connected to the quantum biophysics and the molecular antennas on the surface of a cell, and therefore there was a scientific bridge between that mind and body all of a sudden because uh, we saw how the information is transmitted into the cell and that information influences the activity of the cell. Wow, i got to say, Bruce, I'm going to have to listen to that again. <laughs> it's, a, it's complex to only a certain... It's, a, it's not very complex, but it's, it's, it's massive in its significance is the way I look at it because, uh, I mean, it transformed my entire life. I, I, I didn't believe in spirituality, and I recognized that my identity, that what makes me uh, Bruce and you Tammy, is information that is, that is being received by the cell. So the information is not in the cells, it's being received by them. So then I say, well, then where is Bruce? Where is Tammy? And I say, well, the awareness or recognition is not in the physical plane. It's in the energy of which quantum physicists call the field. And therefore, uh, it's in a very simple, primitive vision. Think about it this way. Uh, if you take iron filings, take a piece of iron and file it and get iron dust, and then you sprinkle the iron filings on a piece of paper, they just randomly fall all over and make a pile of iron filings. Uh, and you, every time you sprinkle it, you get a random pile of iron filings. And I say, okay, wait, one time before you sprinkle it, I stick a magnet under the table. And now when you sprinkle all the iron filings, rather than falling randomly, they form this beautiful pattern of the magnetic field. And every time you sprinkle it, you'll get the same pattern. And the point is very profound because it's an emphasis of physics. It's the, the point in physics is the field. The invisible forces are the shaper of the material reality. And in this image of the magnet and the iron filings is when the field isn't present, the iron filings are just random. But when the field isn't present, it gives an organization and character to the iron filings when you sprinkle them. Well, the nature, this applies at all levels. So basically... The human body is, by the understanding of physics, a complement to an energy field. Because, mm-hmm. you know, when you first started talking, I was, I was thinking to myself, why is Bruce Lipton so happy? Like, oh, that's the, that is what I want to find out in this conversation. And you started, you know, by talking about how you learned from the cell how your senses matter and that that's part of, you know, why be here so we can taste chocolate and, you know, experience. feel this experience. Yeah. And I thought, well, that, that, that's good, but that's not making me that happy. But, oh, okay. I mean, it's making me somewhat happy, but not, <laughs> not as happy as you are. But then as you started talking about how my identity exists beyond whether or not I have a body to receive it, that's when I started imagining how you might be as happy as you are. Well, I'll tell you the truth. The very first instant when I understood this, uh, I felt this, like, lightness of being all of a sudden. And and it it was unusual because it was just, like, floating, more or less, right? And and when I started to meditate on what's going on here, I realized what it was. All of our lives, from the time we're very young and realize that mortality is part of our experience, that we're going to die. 
all of us are going to die. <laughs> we, in our minds, then become very protective of our lives, and our subconscious minds are, through our development, are programmed to continuously watch out and protect your life because we're so afraid of this death kind of thing. And so we don't realize how much of our unconscious behavior is really directed for our safety and our concern for our lives. So there's always this information processing where the brain is scanning everything in the environment and, and trying to evaluate it in regard to our safety and our, you know, keeping alive and the threat on mortality. When this information dropped down in my head, and, the, and this is the fun part, because I wasn't spiritual, and that one moment when I saw how the mechanism worked, it was like, well, of course, <laughs> of course there's, there's this invisible energy field that represents who I am. And yet when I said what the first thing was, was that the field is here whether I'm here or not. And for me, as a scientist, at looking the way I looked at it, it wasn't like, well, Bruce, do you believe in this? And it was sort of like, no, this is the way it works, period. You know, and I looked at it, and I saw it in that first instant that, my identity goes on and on and my physical presence comes and goes and i have to tell you the lightness was the letting go of that fear of mortality for a guy who didn't believe in any of this stuff in the first place all of a sudden within minutes to see that it worked and then minutes to see that not only does it work but i'm an immortal being uh, the fear of my life that I, that you carry around unconsciously and it's there because every step you take it's a biological imperative that you assess your environment for your safety and we do that, and the, and the more we worry over it, the more we're looking at all the negative things that can harm you. That's what you focus on. And it's a very unfortunate situation because we're so locked up in fear about it. And it's not a conscious thing that I'm thinking about it every minute. It's an unconscious program that will operate for you, and it's the kind of thing that gives you good vibes and bad vibes, that information. It's reading what's going on in your world, and, and then you sense it in your body. And the instant that I saw this as, oh, my God, this is a reality, I do not die in that sense, I let go of that. It was like, okay, more fearless in that sense, okay? It's like, okay, life is great, and that worry part or lack of knowing that we live with about so what happens uh when that disappeared man that was a great enlightening moment because it it made life so much more easier and more fun uh without that daily unconscious focus of fear okay i'm with you in the idea of if you really know your immortality in the way that you're describing, you'll feel free and incredibly happy, the way that I believe That's a good you start. are. It is. That's a good but, start. Yeah. So I'm with you there. But okay. where you lost me, just to be honest, yeah. is you were starting to, at one point you were using the metaphor of a television. And yes. if the tube and the television's broken, you, well, there's still a broadcast coming. Yes. Well, yeah, but there's not a unique broadcast. I mean, there's, you know, I'm, I'm of course, talk, thinking about TV channels and there's so yep. many available blah 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 but are, is what you're saying is that there's like a unique bruce and a unique tammy broadcast in the universe a unique all of us broadcast each one of us even if we don't have a body absolutely because you see the, when i talk about the iron filings forming to the magnetic field uh really what it says is that the shape and structure of matter is influenced by the invisible forces itself and uh, we are part there's this 
the field is very hard to define in a sense of, well, it's the invisible moving forces. Yes, and it's energy. And I say, yeah, but what does that mean? Well, it's like this orchestration of energy that if it was like a piano keyboard, consider instead of the 88 keys, maybe 88,000 or 88 million keys long, where you could play any combination of these out of the field at any one time. So the music is always playing. But your receptors, Tammy receptors, only pick up a certain number of these frequencies. Mine pick up a different set of frequencies. There are so many vast numbers of frequencies that the combinations, and when you put them in combinations like this, exceed trillions of combinations where each one of us is like, if you look at the, all the energy in the field, at one time it would be noise. But if you put your filter and block out all the other signals except your signals coming through, then it's like a television broadcast coming out of the air. And at the same time, all the television broadcasts are in the air, but you can't see them. And they're all here at the same time. And yet, each station has a unique set of frequencies, and that's how you can pick it up on your television set. And the parallel is each human has its own set, its own frequencies, which are determined by those antennas. And therefore, each of us is really pulling out a station out of what would be noise, and out of that noise comes a, a clear channel, which okay. is a good word and not just a pun. Yeah. <laughs> so when you die, there won't be any physical receptors for the Bruce Channel. No, and this is very important because, uh, very, just so to bring this back in context, now that there have been so many um, organ transplants, uh, they're beginning to find, especially with hearts and heart lungs, the more tissue you put in, that the recipient of a transplanted organ begins to acquire characteristics of the person who donated the organ. And people used to think, well, that's cellular memory. And it's like, no, no, it's not cellular memory. The cells are living antennas that are still pulling in the identity of that individual. And so uh, as long as they're carrying that organ, especially the big organs, they are, their cells uh, have now two populations of cells in their body. One population, the main, is the original uh, channel, that their personal identity, but the organ that is transplanted is pulling in a different identity. And so when it's transplanted, the two identities begin to merge in that individual body so that the person who is dead but organs are still here, are still transmitting to those organs. Uh, uh, so much so, I mean, the one that I use in the book that I just think is fabulous is a young girl received a heart from another young girl. And once she received the heart, she started having these very, very terrible uh, night tremors and uh, nightmares of being murdered. The doctors checked back to find out about, you know, the, the history of this heart. And it came from a young girl who was murdered. And these nightmares were so vivid that she was able to describe them to the police, and the police were able to use her description to catch and apprehend the murderer. And so you say, well, how did that happen? Well, the person who donated the heart, their identity is still playing through the heart, and the recipient has now got two stations playing at the same time, and was part of that experience. Okay, okay. But now you're Bruce and you're a corpse, right? Oh, well, the dead body part. Well, that's the dead television set. Yeah. Nothing, the, tele, uh, the antennas will be there for a short time until they degenerate, but it, it's not plugged in, in a sense, there's no power running through it. Right. So uh, uh, your station's there and your body's not on. But in the field, there's still some frequency that we could call Bruce if we wanted to. Absolutely. I mean, we could 
in, in a real sense, if we wanted to put the money into it, catalog these self-receptors and assign them to different frequencies, and then you could actually have a readout of uh, frequencies that you can that you can identify each person with. So here you are, you're a cell biologist, and you've now clearly crossed the bridge into yeah. uh, you know into the the realm of the super woo. Uh, and so have you made connections with things like, you know, people who can see invisible beings or ghosts or things like that and how that fits into what you're talking about? Yeah, the fields are still there. And we are sensitive to the fields, but the problem with our sensitivity to the fields is that it's based on our using our sensitivity. It's like a use-it-or-lose-it sense receptor. Anything in our body that we use and maintain uh, will continue to operate, and things that we stop using will actually degenerate and disappear. And there's a tendency for all of us in growing up to fit in. Young people say they have visions and they see things and stuff like that. They're almost always encouraged to not talk about things like that and and discouraged from actually even going there. Uh, So... In our conventional world, we don't use these senses a lot, although aboriginal people are much more capable of using them because that's always been their way of life. But in our Western world, this is infrequently used, so there's an ability to sense these fields, and many people can sense fields. Uh, Even You you don't have to be that weird. I mean, uh, if you you start to feel bad vibes in a a place, you're feeling bad vibes because your sensory system is reading the vibration of the environment you're in and telling you it's not safe. Uh, it's reading these fields, and we all can read the fields, but uh, again, we, we really cut down our sensitivities a lot, uh, unlike more indigenous people who live by the presence of the field, who can tell where the water is by feeling the field and where food is and all these things. Western people have uh, generally not used these traits, and as a result, they're not that they're not there, but uh, we're not really good at it. Mm-hmm. And there are many who are good at it. Okay, I, w- I want to go back to the beginning of our conversation yeah. where you were talking about your discovery of how the individual cell is in many ways a microcosm of our whole body, the 50 trillion of us together. We're, we're a community of cells, yes. as you described. So, you know, 50 trillion beings all getting along. What have you learned from the cells about how we get along, how cells get along, and then how, as humans, we can get along as these big-celled creatures. Uh, Very wonderful insights, because uh, we're really facing a global civilization crisis at this moment because of our inability to get along with each other and get along with the planet and the environment that has given rise to us. And as a result, uh, our survival is now scientifically in question as we face an extinction, a mass extinction on this planet right now, which says in some way we, we must start to relate differently. Otherwise, uh, we're, we're on a, a course to, to our own extinction. And so uh, it's very interesting uh, because cells are like miniature humans. They live in this community. And if you understand the nature of cells, all cells have jobs. All cells get health care. All cells have protection. All cells get salaries. They get paid. 
They don't. They're, they're not getting paid the same. I mean, uh, skin cells don't make as much as nerve cells. Nerve cells uh, get so much they actually have an entourage of other cells to support them. And so there's this community. And so uh, what's really interesting is if you look at the dynamics of how cells relate to each other and how uh, how the community uh, operates uh, successfully to the extent that when a human is blissed out, that means 50 trillion citizens are all blissed out at the same time. Uh, that we start to understand the, that cells have a, an economy, a politics, uh, uh, a program of community that offer us great insight into how we could do the same here on this planet. And it, actually, it's very interesting because a, a very old uh, uh, saying from history is that the answers lie within. And truly, in regard to how can we advance humanity to a more successful state, the answers to that actually uh, are to look within the system and see how the cells carry out the same functions that we do because they have the same needs as a, a person is what a cell needs. I mean, that's why... People have needs for air and water, food, all these things is because the cells need the air and the water and the food and all these other things as well. And so uh, basically the cells' needs are our needs. And if we see how the cell meets those needs and how they do it in the nature of the community, then it's a template that serves to uh, provide us with information about how a few billion people, relatively small numbers when you're talking 50 trillion cells, how a few billion people can learn to live in harmony like the cells of the body. So uh, there's information available for us at every level from the politics through the economy, et cetera, to assess the cellular community and apply that to our world, and especially the cells' abilities with technology and, and their understanding of efficiency and things that we could generally uh, uh, need or need right now to bring health back to our global community. So, Bruce, tell me what the top things we can learn from the 50 trillion cells and how they work it out that we oh, can okay. apply well, to the human challenge. Well, the first thing, let's just talk about economy because that's the big problem we have right now. And here's an interesting fact. That the, the cells produce energy through their work and their effort, and when they work in this giant community, they all, they all have different jobs. The, the cells have like unions. Uh, they're hard cells. They do a totally different function than a, than a stomach cell, which is totally different than a skin cell. So when you look at the body, you realize 50 trillion cells, and they all have these different unions where they, they carry out these different functions cooperatively working together. And through their efforts, they produce energy. And energy, in chemical form in the body is a molecule called ATP. And biologists actually say, uh, uh, they use the phraseology, uh, ATP is the coin of the realm, meaning it's units of energy which are equivalent to money. So it's interesting that I say, well, if I want to see how does the economy of the body work, then I can follow the, the, the trail of the ATP and it will show me. And what's really interesting is this, is that number one, there's no wealth in a body until all cells have basic coverage. In other words, all cells get health care, they get protection, they're all paid, and, and they're, they're all got their basic needs covered. When the cellular system, uh, all the cells in the system have their basic needs covered, any excess energy then is more or less profit at that point. And it's very important to recognize that, uh, for example, there can't be cells in, let's say, the, uh, the liver that say, I, I want more money and I'm going to accumulate a lot of money here. Well, let's say cells in the muscles in the leg don't have any money. That's not how it works. Cells cannot accumulate energy until all cells get the basics of life, which in our world would be food, shelter, and protection. 
if you can provide it to everybody, then anything you produce after that is excess to the system. Now, here comes the next interesting part about the economy. Every cell can make a large amount of money, but there's a, a ceiling. The cells can't overfill themselves with ATP molecules. They reach a limit of ATP. And then, that's a, so then you can be a poor cell, but you can, uh, when the system starts to get wealth, all the cells can start earning money and making more and more ATP. And then they reach it where the cells make a, a level of ATP for themselves. That's their spending money, so to speak. And anything beyond that goes into a community bank. The community bank is deposits, of, it's called fat deposits, actually. And this energy is being stored, and it's not for any individual cell. It's for the system. It's for the system to fix anything in the system, maintain the system, keep the system running, protect the system over long periods where there's no energy. Uh, and so basically it says that every cell works, every cell gets paid, every cell can make a maximum amount of money that's in excess of what it needs, and then after that, all excess profits go to the entire community to do as the community deems best and necessary for the growth and survival of that community. And ultimately, with enough extra material, then you can actually go into reproduction and, and reproduce the system if you would you know, get the certain requirements of energy for the system first. Once you exceed that, uh, then excess can actually go into reproducing the entire system. So basically it says... Look at our world today where there are people, individuals having 50, 60 billion dollars and other individuals living uh, on a couple dollars a day and not living very well. And you start to realize, okay, there's something totally wrong here. We live in a very Darwinian world where it says, I deserve to have 60 billion because I'm worth it and you're not. If cells did this in the body, the entire system would fall apart immediately. It wouldn't work at all. There, there, there isn't that kind of Darwinian competitiveness. A body works in harmony and the whole giant community of 50 trillion cells are the same community. So in our particular world, what we have to recognize is this time of crisis that we're experiencing right now is a necessary precipitating factor for evolution. And the reason is very simple. We're facing the wall. We either have to make a decision here to do something other than what we're doing, because if we continue what we're doing, we know we're going to go extinct. So we are at a point of something has to be profoundly different now to provide for our survival into the future. So we are facing an evolution. And, and when we get into this evolution, then we really have to understand that the nature of our evolution is not the in human individual. That's not the nature of our evolution. The evolution is the community of humans are recognizing we're all part of one super organism called humanity. So, well, we have 50 trillion cells making up a human body. We have six, seven billion humans as the equivalent of cells making a larger body called humanity. So the evolution that we're facing is the this competition that we've lived with for the last few hundred years, especially since Darwin, is actually a very destructive and divisive force, that the human body doesn't have that. If it did, it would fall apart almost immediately. That we now know that evolution is based on community and harmony. So from a Darwinian point of view, that evolution is based on struggle and the competition for survival, uh, we realize that was 180 degrees away from where we're supposed to be going. So we look at the harmony and unity of the body and then say, look, when country is fighting country, when people are fighting people, 
if that occurred in the body, that's called autoimmune disease, self-destruction. And humanity as the evolving structure right now is in a process of massive self-destruction. And in order to pull out of that, we have to recognize, first, our individuality. We are individuals, but we're individual selves. We're interdependent with the whole, that all of humans are working as one living system. And that's what we're beginning to recognize, especially with the global crises. Like, uh, if you pollute the water here, it's going to pollute the water over there. You screw with the air here, it's going to mess the air over there. Uh, even if there are people in different countries that are affecting each other, that is like the wake-up call says, first of all, we're all humans, so we all have to work together. Now, uh, now, yes. now, Bruce, it seems, though, that the 50 trillion cells in my body didn't have to sort of work this out and go through an evolutionary process where they moved from power and competition to harmony and cooperation. They just sort of naturally operated that way. But uh, we, no, but there was actually a very interesting developmental period where all new forms of community were being tried out. That was what evolution was about. For the first, uh, I guess, almost three billion years of life on this planet, all there were were single-cell entities, just single cells uh, living in some kind of very loose community relationship, but a single individual free-living entities. Uh, and about uh, 700 million years ago, the, the world was filled with all these single living entities and the next level of evolution was what if the single cells came together and formed what we call multicellular organisms that's what we call animals and plants those were all trial periods where each different organism was trying out different kinds of communities and, and then putting the program to pull the communities together in a memory database of, of the DNA so that Evolution was a process of trying communities to see if they were effective, and those that were effective are here. Those that didn't work out very well have become extinct because the, the, whatever way they organized their community, was, it, it didn't support their survival. So we are like those structures right now. Is humanity as an evolving structure uh, going to survive or not? I don't have the answer for that. I know we're facing the challenge. And, and the answers that I think are going to be very helpful, of course, are what we're talking about, is finding the pattern of a very successful community that has already worked it out and, and modeling ourselves after that. But there was, in fact, a trial period, and that's the history of evolution with the winners still here, and the communities that didn't quite make it are, are the ones that are, are now extinct. So mm -hmm. there was a trial period. But, but what, once you, yeah. what you're describing is that the thrust of evolution is cooperation, not yes. this kind of survival of the fittest, I'm going to be stronger and dominate. That's Absolutely. a totally topsy-turvy view, I think, of the way we've been trained about what it takes to make it. That, this, is, this is so right on and so true, and the crux of our entire world problem, because we've been programmed, and generations have been programmed, with the same belief of Darwinian world a constant battle for survival and that other people or other organisms are going to try to beat you to, for them to stay alive so we see this struggle for survival uh, we, we bought this as a belief and then created the world that reflects it and that's the issue of why new evolution insights are telling us my god evolution isn't competition evolution is all based on cooperation and it turns out if you look at the biosphere the only organisms that are really clearly not cooperating uh, are human beings. And, and, and this is why 
the environment is, in a sense, pushing us to an extinction because we're disrupting the harmony of the entire biosphere. Interestingly, in the first half of our conversation, we were talking about how there would still be the frequency of Bruce, even yes. if Bruce had gone extinct, we could say. Yes. And yet this is an issue that you're very passionate about, helping humans evolve to be more cooperative like cells are. Can, can you help me understand that? Why are you so passionate about this? Because once I started to try to live the, the life of a cell, which had a little more details than some of the things that we talked about earlier, and I started to learn to live in harmony with myself, with my environment, and finding those people around me, uh, I realized, my God, that I have a completely different life than I had in the formative years when I was a professor and all that, which I was living more of the Darwinian world. Uh, this other side of this is like, it is so rewarding and so inviting for, for uh, to move into a world of harmony and community. And yet it's very difficult for people because we are innately programmed not to, to be in that world. We're programmed to be in this uh, uh, world as, uh, as Tennyson uh, said, uh, red in tooth and claw, which is the Darwinian nightmare. Uh, and the fact that's very interesting is uh, we can say, well, Darwin was right. Look at the world. And then it turns out, yeah, but you didn't understand that since we are creating the world, once we put those Darwinian beliefs and create from that point, then the world will manifest the Darwinian competition and threats that we see now. So it's incumbent upon us, if we change this, around the reality of a Garden of Eden is actually at our fingertips, except that uh, we're the principal uh, individuals, organisms, that are undermining that possibility for all of us. And why would I be so you know, encouraging of other people is, well, personally, <laughs> I'm personally feeling I, I live in heaven. Uh, I'm creating uh, with an awareness of creating and manifesting a life of my creation. And if people would understand this, I could see the whole world shifting this way. Uh, and this is really what uh, I think people, people have been searching for this for a long, long time, but you can't get there with the old belief systems that we've been programmed with, educated with, because these beliefs are actually taking us off-center, and therefore we've hit the crisis of can we survive, and the answer is, well, not using the beliefs that we've been living by. Uh, and if this all turns around, then I can imagine, uh, like, if the whole human population is a part of this one living body, as I said, an individual, when they're blissed out, all 50 trillion cells are blissed out. Imagine a world where every human is totally blissed out in harmony with an environment. I live with that in a smaller piece, but would love to see it in the whole world view. And I personally, my excitement and my commitment is having experienced this compared to what I used to live while I was a, uh, on the faculty in the conventional scientific world, and uh, compared to this world. And I, I'm so grateful for this awareness uh, that I made a commitment. That I said, you know, as long as the world wants to hear about it, I'll go out and talk to anybody about this. And, and ever since I said that, I, I've been on the road forever. <laughs> but it's so exciting because I've seen the evolution uh, since I've been lecturing on this since 1985 uh, to now I can see a rapid acceleration. Well, m many people are not seeing it. Uh, uh, I, I can see we are rapidly accelerating to a uh, very, very interesting uh, time period coming right now, 2012 time, in fact, where we have a, an opportunity, and it's, a, it's going to be a global opportunity to make this evolutionary leap 
and go beyond where humans have ever been. Or, uh, again, it's a choice. Uh, we can continue doing what we're doing, but it's not going to be as much fun. Now, now, you called it an evolutionary leap, and I know you've also used this phrase, and it's part of the title of the three-part online event series that begins It Sounds True on June 9th, Spontaneous Evolution. So evolutionary leap, spontaneous evolution, what does that mean? Well, spontaneous. Our conventional teaching has uh, given us a Darwinian perception that evolution is a very slow, imperceptible, gradual process taking millions of years before changes occur. And so we bought into the belief of evolution as this long, long, you know, beyond our comprehension time. And over the years, uh, especially through the work of Stephen Jay Gould and uh, Niles Eldridge, a review of our history of life on this planet says that perception of this slow, gradual change does not hold up with the facts. That what we find is that life goes on for some period of time, very slowly, you know, just evolving, and somewhat in, in a balanced state, and then something causes an upheaval, and, and the result of this upheaval essentially wipes out life, and then we start all over again with the new combinations and new trying you know, trying out new organisms and stuff like that. This has happened five times on the planet. They're called mass extinctions. And they're also found out they occur virtually instantaneously, and the new evolution occurs almost instantaneously after the old uh, civilizations and old organisms get wiped out. There's something new starting right up. So when we look at history of evolution, it jumps. It goes along in a steady state, and then all of a sudden there's this rapid change, and then it goes to the next level. It goes along in a steady state, and then there's a rapid change, and then it goes again. So what this means is, is that when we look at evolution, it has a, it's called actually, the technical term is called punctuated equilibrium. There's a punctuation mark, and all of a sudden, like an exclamation mark, and boom, there's a cha- everything gets shaken up. I, I consider it like an etch-a-sketch, where you, you create, you know, with the little dials, you create an image on the screen, you got this beautiful image, and all of a sudden, somebody shakes the etch-a-sketch, and the whole thing's gone, you start over again. This etch-a-sketch moment is upon us right now, because um, uh, when science has fully recognized that uh, we're not flirting with the sixth mass extinction, uh, five previous ones have already occurred, of course, but we're actually deep into it. And so when we start talking as realistic things, such as the, the fish will be fished out of the ocean in 30 more years, that all the resources are, are dwindling that have been driving this whole thing, and we're running out of all the raw materials in a very short time, all of a sudden it says, guess what? The changes are going to come, and they're going to hit us very fast right now. And, and so we're given an opportunity to reconsider what we're doing and take this jump and go from this level of of how we live on the planet to a a much higher, much more compatible uh, way of living with each other and and the biosphere. I equate the changes to the metamorphosis of a butterfly. Uh, I said cells are like miniature people. So you think of a caterpillar, an inside caterpillar, you've got billions of cells. And the caterpillar every day is eating and growing and growing. And if you were uh, the economist cell in that caterpillar, you'd look around and go, okay, the economy's booming. We're all working. You know, the plant's moving. The food's coming in. We're producing, manufacturing. Everything is great. The economy's great. And uh, then one day, all of a sudden, uh, the caterpillar essentially stops eating. 
And if you were the cells inside that caterpillar, you'd be looking around going, hey, so what's wrong? The economy's slowing down. Uh, as a matter of fact, we're eating so, so little food now that we're laying off cells in the gut. We don't need them anymore. And all of a sudden, you start to see that if you were with a cell in that caterpillar body, you'd look around and go, oh, my God, this the system's falling apart. The structure is falling apart. This, they actually, the structures inside the caterpillar start to fall apart. The, the economy's ended when the caterpillar start, when it stops eating. And if you're one of those cells, you'd be looking around going, oh my God, the world that I've known is turning upside down. Many cells around you are actually committing suicide in biological terms. That's called apoptosis. And so you see cells are dying out, the things falling apart, and you think the end is happening. And then, in the midst of all this chaos, there are cells genetically identical to all the other cells, but see the world differently. And they start to coordinate, like, let's try this, let's try something different. And these cells start to put together a new structure, and all of a sudden, the community starts to adapt and create the new structure which is the butterfly, which is the evolutionary advance from where the caterpillar was. So uh, when I look at the world today, I see it as we're in this caterpillar phase right now. The dissolution has started. The thing is falling apart. And to survive is not to rebuild a caterpillar. To survive is to try these new ideas, these new visions, bring them into play. The, these cells that are, these new vision cells are called imaginal cells. I just love the name, imaginal cells. And there are imaginal cells popping up all over the place. As a matter of fact, sounds true. It's a clearinghouse of imaginal cell information. And what you're saying is that there are other ways to live in this planet, to learn to live in harmony with each other, to learn balance, to, to bring male and female back together in harmony to work with each other, to learn that our environment is, is our mother and that we must treat it this way. It's an avatar kind of movie reality that we're going to have to play out here. And what's important about it is these changes don't take millions of years that we're going to hit this big speed bump coming up in the near future, and the choice then is very clear. Either you move ahead or the old caterpillar vision of our Earth civilization is on its way out. Uh, whether we're going to make the butterfly or not, that's what we're all active and getting excited about because the time is now. So it's not going to take a million years. We're going to see changes uh, within the next few years. With a couple of years, the, this place is going to be remarkably different than you see it right now. Which brings me to my last question here, which is about the year 2012. And when I hear you say that the world is going to be remarkably different within the next couple of years, what do you think will happen in 2012? And the world will be different in a couple of years in what ways? What will we actually see? Well, what's going to happen is that the way of life right now, which is based on, uh, on this ultra-competitive nature, uh, scarcity and raping the planet of all of its final resources, will change where we realize you, we, this is not sustainable. We can't do this anymore. It's, that's a given fact. Uh, and the simple reality is that means that we're going to have to change our lifestyle to a completely different way of living. And is, uh, basically what, what I see is, well, the main precipitating factor is already the fuse has been lit and it's getting ready for a bigger explosion the way I see it, is the economic time bomb that's uh, basically going to say that the money that we've been using may not be valuable anymore. We're seeing a very shaky uh, economic world right now, and uh, this will be something that would pull the rug out under the structure if we had to revalue what we live on. And it would change the way we live. We're going to have to stop extracting and start helping bring nature back into order again because 
uh, human behavior is responsible for so much global disruption that it's precipitating climate change. It's not, we didn't create global warming, but we are certainly aggravating the situation with the way we're destroying the environment. So that means everything the way we've been living will have to turn around. We're going to have to stop being the users and start returning back to the garden. And when we do this, a couple of interesting things. It's going to change our standard of living big time. We're going to have a, uh, a lower standard of living now. And as soon as you say that something, oh, no, and, I'm, and yet here's the surprising results that those that have cut back and have changed their efficiency and, and have generated a lower standard of living, in the biggest surprise of all, found that their quality of life has gone considerably greater. So it's funny because the standard of living quality of life are not directly proportional. Matter of fact, uh, on a lower standard of living, there's a higher quality of life frequently as a result. So I see that we're going to face some very interesting times here as we try to uh, deal with this massive financial problem. And, and it's interesting because 2012 is not the end of the world. 2012 is an astrological date. And it has profound meaning because 2012, uh, the, the Milky Way, the galaxy that we're in, it's sort of like a flat dish. With, it's like stirred up, so it's like a little cyclone in a flat dish, and so you can see the swirls moving around. Uh, and so that means if you look at the, the galaxy that we're in, it's actually flat. And the Earth has been below the level of the, of the equator of this disk for the last 30, 40,000 years. But at this point, the Earth is coming up to align with the equator. And you say, well, what the heck does that mean? Well, I say, well, look, what is the difference, just say, of life on this planet when the equator is tilting one way in the summer or, you know, and then tilting another way in, in the winter? It's like just by tilting how we respond to the environment uh, around the Earth, we change from summer to winter. And I'm saying, well, this is on a much more massive scale, that the energy of the galaxy is is a different energy below the disk than the energy above the disk. It's sort of like a North Pole and a South Pole. And that we have been in, let's say, the southern energy for the last 30, 40,000 years. We're coming up to the equator, and then we pop over. Uh, the equator is the balance point, And then we pop into the other pole, and that's going to cause a, a change of the energy in the field. And since the field is the shaper of matter... When we change the Earth's field, we change how the organization of matter occurs on this planet. And uh, we're part of that uh, evolutionary change to adapt during this time, to take us out of the old structure of the old field and help us evolve into the more harmonious structure necessary for our survival as we enter into the new field. Bruce Lipton will be featured in a three-part online event series at SoundsTrue.com on Spontaneous Evolution and 2012, which begins on June 9th. And Bruce, I just want to thank you for this conversation. I, I have to say it's pretty mind-blowing, mind-bending. I think you, you are the most visionary cell biologist I've, uh, I could imagine. My imaginal cells could imagine. And, and the happiest I could, <laughs> my imaginal cells could imagine. I so appreciate it, and, and I, I just so appreciate Sounds True, because it's such a great opportunity to get the imaginal cell information into a world right now when it's, we are going through this very exciting time. And, and I love just to say it's going to be a, an exciting time, and exciting could be positive or negative depending on how you view it, and I'm, I'm hoping we all see the exciting, positive nature of this evolution that could lie in front of us. Very good. For SoundsTrue.com, this is Tammy Simon. Thank you for listening.